chapter 5. Our text for this morning will be verses 24 through 29. And thank you to my beloved wife for taking out the live floral arrangement. I have terrible allergies and uh, I would be wheezing and sneezing and you name it. So uh, thank you for that. She knows me well. We've been married actually about 36 years. We're coming up on our 36 year anniversary. And um, I was thinking the other day, just in the weeks leading up to our ceremony back in 1987, uh, the owner of the company that Kathy's mom worked for wanted to give us a very special wedding present. But we needed to know ahead of time because it came with one of two options. Well, it turns out that Kathy's mom's boss and his wife owned two beautiful condos, one in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and the other in Fort Myers Beach, Florida. And he offered either one of those two destinations to us for our honeymoon. Well, we thought about it for about 30 seconds and figured that it would be a whole lot more comfortable to lay out and get some sun on the sandy beaches of Florida than on the side of a rocky mountain. And so we chose Fort Myers Beach. And it turned out to be a great choice. It was a great destination for us to celebrate our newfound marriage to one another. And all throughout life, we are faced with choices, right? Different options, different paths, all requiring decisions. One of the toughest decisions that Kathy and I had to make was way back in 2009 when we were faced with deciding whether to pastor in Minnesota or in Pennsylvania. And... um, We had two really nice opportunities to pastor. We had visited the church in Minnesota. It was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I could go on and on about how beautiful a structure it was on 60 acres in the north woods of Minnesota. Absolutely beautiful. We liked the people there. Uh, it It was a ministry that we could have been a part of for a long, long time. We also had the option to come out to Pennsylvania And this isn't going to sound all that spiritual, but we ended up choosing to come to Pennsylvania because of two reasons. One, because the people in Minnesota talk funny. And second, see, I told you it wasn't very spiritual. Second, uh, we like the people better in Pennsylvania. So not real spiritual uh, grounding in our decision making, but we chose to come to Pennsylvania and to pastor for the Lord's glory. And the Lord has blessed uh, that decision. Each of our three children found their spouses here, and we had the joy of being a part of founding Grace Life Church as well. But we had to choose. We had to choose which destination that we thought was best. And so we come to our passage this morning here in the Gospel of John, and we find that Jesus is offering two destinations to sinners. Eternal life in heaven and eternal death in hell. And as we've been working our way through this gospel narrative, we've seen Jesus progressively revealing himself to man. In no uncertain terms, Jesus has fully affirmed that he is indeed the Messiah, the Holy One sent from God to redeem sinners. God incarnate, who is equal with God in every way. And as we look at this section today, we're going to find that Jesus clearly states that there are two categories of people. 
There are those who receive eternal life and those who are spiritually dead and under his judgment. And so the million-dollar question, just to jump to the chase, the million-dollar question that Jesus is about to answer is what determines who goes into which category. So we'll find here that these two groups are comprised of people who either embrace the powerful way of salvation offered by Jesus or those who reject it. Jesus will unequivocally state that he alone possesses the power to impart eternal life to spiritually dead sinners. And then he will say that in the future he will raise from the dead everyone who has ever lived on this earth and judge them for all eternity. And friends, these are sobering truths. These are sobering truths and a matter of life and death. And so as we read our passage for this morning, we're going to find three points of emphasis if you're taking notes. First, all people are either spiritually alive or spiritually dead. Second, only Jesus can give eternal life to a spiritually dead sinner And then third, Jesus is the final judge. So look at verse 24, and we'll read through verse 29, and then we'll go through it. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, and those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of life. judgment. Powerful yet sobering words. The first point of emphasis that we want to consider this morning is found here in verse 24, and it's that all people, all people, those who are here today, those who are in our neighborhoods, those who are in our families, all people, are either spiritually alive or spiritually dead. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And so when Jesus says that he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me will have eternal life and therefore will not receive the judgment that he deserves. That's exactly what he means. And this is not hard to understand. It's powerful truth, but it's not hard to understand. You see, the Lord's intent is pretty simple here. A person is either physically alive or they're physically dead. And it's the same way spiritually. A person is either spiritually alive or they're spiritually dead. Jesus sent... Jesus was sent to the earth by the Father to save spiritually dead sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And he's referring there to, to spiritual death. You see, that's every person's starting point. Every person has inherited a sin nature from Adam who served as the representative of mankind upon the earth. So in a very real sense, when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And that's what Romans 5 and verse 12 says. So every man, woman, and child is a sinner because that is their nature. And because of that, every created person is born spiritually dead. That is their default position. All of us were born dead in our trespasses and sins. The theological word is total depravity. In that we receive the sin nature from Adam who was our representative. And because we are sinners, we have a sin nature that has infected every aspect of our being. Our intellect, our emotions, and our will. But it's important that we understand that being totally depraved does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. It doesn't mean we're all mass murderers or committed heinous crimes. It just means that every part of our being has been infected by sin. We are, we are dead. We are born spiritually dead, alienated from God. Man is not born neutral. Man's starting point is that he is already alienated from God because of his sin. When we say that someone is spiritually dead, it means that there's no spiritual life. There's no ability to please God on their own accord. We must be born again. Sound familiar? This is the drum that Jesus has been beating in his his uh, public ministry. We must be born from above. We must be made spiritually alive, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And this is what the Apostle Paul addresses to the church at Ephesus who were experiencing some confusion as it related to these issues. In verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2 and following, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's speaking to the church at Ephesus, okay, who are made up of believers in Jesus Christ, but he's reminding them that they were dead in their trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship." 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So hang on to the phrase that we were prepared, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from God. That's our default position. That is the default position of every person because of their sin nature and because they commit sin. So there are those who are spiritually alive, and there are those who are spiritually dead. Those who have eternal life and those who will experience eternal death. And so what is it that distinguishes these two groups? Well, we find it here in verse 24. The difference is that those who have eternal life have heard Jesus' word and have believed the one who sent Jesus, whereas those who are spiritually dead have either not heard or not believed. Now, someone might ask the question, well, how can anyone be held accountable for something that they have not heard? I want you to think about that. What would your answer be to that question? If someone came to you and said, how can someone be held accountable for something that they haven't heard? Where would you take them? Well, Romans chapter 1 speaks all about this. Romans chapter 1 speaks all about the accountability that we have before God as our creator. God created all people in his image, and we are accountable to him. He has revealed himself in a general way, Romans 1 says, in a general way through creation, and he has implanted in the heart of every man that he exists. And it says in Romans chapter 1 that we are then without excuse because God sets the rules. And as, as our representative on the earth, Adam sinned, and therefore he passed on the sin nature to all of his posterity. And so we're sinners by nature, but we're sinners by commission. We're alienated from God. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. And it doesn't get any more bleak than that. What does a spiritually dead person deserve? Eternal death. So God must do something in us. And of course, we just read in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul says that it's him who makes us alive, spiritually alive. So how can someone be held accountable for something that they have not heard? This is why we need missionaries, right? Paul addresses this. He plays off of these words in Romans chapter 10 when he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The same words that Jesus said. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And then it goes on and he says, how will they hear? How will anyone hear? Meaning, how will they hear the word of Jesus if there is no one to tell them? It is remarkable how somehow we as sinful people fit into the sovereign plan of God. Sinners. Sinners by commission, sinners by nature, and yet God uses sinful man who has been redeemed and forgiven of our sin through faith in Christ to spread the gospel message. The gospel means good news. We just celebrated it on Easter. And we see here that you cannot separate belief in the Son from belief in the Father. 
So this brings us then to verses 25 and 26, and the second point of emphasis here from Jesus, and it is that only He can give eternal life to a spiritually dead sinner. Only Jesus can give eternal life to a spiritually dead sinner. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. So Jesus again uses this phrase, truly, truly. Truly, truly. In other words, this is true. This is true. There is both a present reality and a time coming, a now but not yet scenario as it relates to those who are born again. In other words, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ by faith, you are already spiritually resurrected, spiritually alive. It's a present reality. As we saw when we read Ephesians chapter 2. But there is an hour coming, Jesus says, that there will be a physical resurrection for those who are his. Life is inherent in God. He is the giver of life. He spoke physical life into existence and creation, and he breathes spiritual life into all who believe Jesus' words. Verse 26 is another reference to the equality of God the Father and God the Son. They both have life and give life. Look again at the words of verse 26. Jesus says, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And so it's another claim that Jesus shares full deity with the Father. And again, John 10 and verse 30, I and the Father are one. But at the same time that they are one, this verse distinguishes between the Father and the Son and shows that the Son is subject to the Father, which shows a clear distinction of persons within the Godhead. And this is important because it helps us to understand that though there is just one God, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, we are monotheists, God has revealed himself in three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. That's who God is. That is who God is. But there's been a lingering heresy that denies the distinction of persons between Father, Son, and Spirit. And this heresy is called Sabellianism. And it's named after a, a third century heretic theologian named Sabellius. Other names for this heresy are Monarchianism or Modalism, still exists today. The Oneness Pentecostals or the Jesus only Pentecostals deny the Trinity. And they teach that there's not a distinction in persons, but God has just taken on three different modes over time, hence the term modalism. God is one, He's just taken on different manifestations or different modes over time. For instance, they might say that God manifested Himself as the Father in the Old Testament, and then He manifested Himself as the Son 
when Jesus was on the earth, and now he manifests himself as the Spirit. Heresy. It's not who God is. And Athanasius, an early defender of the faith, used verses like verse 26 here as proof that the Father and the Son are two distinct persons. The Athanasian Creed puts it this way, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor the divine substance or essence. And so ultimately, Jesus is making his case that there are only two groups of people, those who are spiritually dead and those who are spiritually alive and have eternal life. And he's also making clear that he is the only one powerful enough to impart life to those who are spiritually dead. Which brings us then to the third and final point of emphasis, and it is that Jesus is the final judge. I want you to listen closely. Jesus is the final judge. There is no judging beyond Jesus' final judgment. If you're sitting here today and you're waiting for something to happen in the future, uh, I may believe down the line. Have you ever had anybody talk to you about something like that, as crazy as that is? I literally, as a pastor, have had maybe eight or ten people over the years who said, ah, it's not for me now. It's not for me now, but maybe down the road. Jesus is the final judge. There is a finality with the ultimate judgment of Jesus. And we see that here in verses 27 through 29. Verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Here we find that Jesus is the judge of all mankind. He has been given the ultimate authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he's the son of man. This title, this description, the Son of Man, goes back to the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men in every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man, in that he is both God and man the great God-man, the hypostatic union. He is uniquely qualified to judge mankind because he is both truly God and he is truly man. And as a man, as God incarnate, God in the 
in the flesh, he understands what it's like to be human. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I feel like we need to keep putting things together here. So let's go back to what I just read about Jesus being without sin. Right in the heart of that passage I just read, it says, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. And we're talking about the Son of Man here. Jesus lived on the earth for some 33 years and yet was without sin. Without sin in any way. Think about the sinful thoughts that you have. Things that pop into your head that are just rotten. Where did that come from? Why is that there? You know, Jesus never had one of those. He never had a sinful thought. He never had a sinful action. He was 100% without sin. Why? Because he was the God-man. Truly God, truly man. Jesus was what we call impeccable. He was impeccable in that because he was the God-man, he was not able to sin, but that doesn't minimize the temptations and the reality of the temptations that Jesus had. Those were real. He was tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin, but because of his, his nature being the God-man, he was not able to sin. There was no way on earth when Satan was trying to tempt Jesus that he would succumb to the temptation. Jesus is impeccable, not able to sin. So he creates man and Jesus, as we've seen in our text, all the way back into chapter 1 of this gospel, that Jesus is the creator. So the Father and the Son created the universe and all that is in it, and created Adam. And as they created Adam, Adam was not created with a sin nature, right? So Adam was created not impeccable, in the sense that he couldn't sin, but he was created peccable, which means that he was able not to sin. So had Adam not sinned, he could have lived in perpetuity, but he did sin. And when he did sin, as the representative of all of us on the earth, that sin nature then was passed on to all of Adam's posterity. So we are sinners. We're, we have a sin nature. We're all born dead 
in our trespasses and sins. Are you seeing the gravity of this? This is the default position of the billions of people in the world today. They are born separated from God, dead in their sins. How are they going to hear without someone to tell them? If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, how will they hear unless someone goes to them? How would we hear unless someone had come to us and told us about the glories of Jesus? So Jesus is impeccable. Adam created peccable. But because we were created, and because of the sin of Adam, we are not able not to sin. Jesus not able to sin. Adam able not to sin. And all of mankind not able not to sin. Someone might say that's a double negative, Pastor Dave. Okay, all men are sinners. All men are sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's the standard? The glory of God, perfection, righteousness, holiness. Every man has fallen short of that because of their sin. So in our text, Jesus says there's a time coming that the Son of Man will give the command for all people to be resurrected. Think of the finality of this. If you're playing around with God, and you're one of these guys that, ah, it's not for me now, but at some point down the road, maybe we'll turn in the direction of Jesus. Beware. There's a time coming, Jesus says, when he will give this command for all people to be resurrection. All those in the grave or the tomb will hear his voice and come forth for their judgment. In other words, there is a day coming that body and soul will be reunited and judgment will commence. But what does he mean here When he says in verse 29, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I don't know about you, but in a quick reading of that, it sounds like a works-based salvation. Those who do good deeds are resurrected to life. Those who commit evil deeds are resurrected to judgment. And there are those cults who would say, here it is. (laughs) Here it is. You must be good and do what the cult leader says, or you will be judged. This would be completely and wholly inconsistent with the rest of Scripture. It would also be wholly and inconsistent with all that we've just talked about as it relates to our sin nature and what we deserve. The wages of sin is, is death. It's not a works-based salvation that Jesus is talking about here. If you've been good, whatever that is, you'll have eternal life. But if you've been bad, you'll be judged to eternal death. 
Now, what Jesus is saying is consistent with what he always says, which is the one who believes in him will be changed. Old things will pass away. Behold, all things will become new. Because of that transformation, a believer's life will be characterized by good works. Like like James said, faith without works is a dead faith. And in the same way, the life of those who reject Christ will be characterized by evil deeds. I want to show you this. So go back a couple of pages to John 3, verses 18 and 19. John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. This follows the great verse 16 that we all know and love. But look at verse 18 again. John 3, 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. And what does he say? For their deeds are evil. Jesus is being extremely consistent in what he is saying here. So inquisitive minds want to know, what is the evil deed list? I did a search throughout Scripture to see if there is a comprehensive evil deed list. Now, Obviously, a number of passages came to mind, the first of which is what Sonny read for us this morning about the seven things that God hates. Okay? But go with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. So what Jesus is referring to here is not that there's this works-based salvation that whoever does good things will have eternal life. Whoever does bad things will have eternal death. Everyone has the same starting point. Everyone has the default position that they are dead in their trespasses and sins, and that's going to be the final judgment of their life unless they repent of their sin and they turn to Jesus Christ in faith. That's the reality of the sobering truth that there are only two destinations. There aren't a bunch. We don't believe in soul sleep. We don't believe in annihilation. There are two ultimate destinations, either with Christ forever in heaven or in a place, a real place called hell, forever, eternal damnation. Sobering. This is what is at stake. It isn't that we just have vitamins for people the gospel isn't a vitamin it'll help you feel better if you take it in the morning it's what can bring someone life people are dying there's all kinds of medications we prayed for several people today who have been under the care of skilled physicians 
The gospel is the medication that cures this sickness, in a sense, this death. It's the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 5 helps us here. If you would turn there, Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh, and what, what Paul is doing here at the churches that he's writing to in Galatia, is he's delineating between what it's like to have the Spirit of God who lives in you. So he's talking here about um, the desires of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, the desires of the flesh, and how these are warring against one another. Paul speaks of it clearly in Romans 7. But in verse 19, he talks about the deeds of those who are living according to the flesh. In other words, those who are unregenerate, those who have not been saved. This is the tenor of their life, he says. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because it's proof positive that those who practice these things, those who make these things the, the normal way they live, it proves that they've not been changed by the power of the gospel. They don't possess the Spirit of God because he says over here in verse 16, he says, I, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For those are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, and then he goes on to enumerate them. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. There's a stark difference between those who have eternal life and those who have eternal death. There's a stark difference between those whom the Lord has changed through the power of the gospel and those who have not been changed. There is a stark difference. There are two destinations for every person. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 also speaks to this. Again, we're just kind of seeing what this evil deed list looks like. But look at 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. And the, and the church at Corinth was a messed up church. 
in quotation marks, because a lot of unbelievers had infiltrated that church. It was all messed up. So Paul doesn't mince any words. He says in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous, those who practice evil deeds, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So notice the change now. Ready? Verse 11. Such were some of you. See, there was a change. Such were some of you, but you were washed. But you were sanctified, set apart unto holiness. You were justified, declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So Jesus isn't talking about a works-based salvation. He's talking about the result of a person who's truly regenerated and a person who is not. So as it relates to resurrection, some would teach that at the end of the age, there is this one giant resurrection of physical bodies who will join up with their souls, and this event will usher into eternity. But it appears in Scripture that rather than one big resurrection, there are a series of resurrections, multiple resurrections. The first happens at the time of the great rapture of the church. This is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. All church-age believers, and when we say church-age believers, we mean those who have trusted in Christ during the church age. This is the age between uh, Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that's described there and this rapture event. All those church-age saints who had died, their bodies will be resurrected and join their souls, which are already in heaven. Absent with the body, present with the Lord. Man has an immaterial side, soul-spirit, and a material side with our body. Our bodies go in the grave. Our souls will either go into glory with Jesus if we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, or our soul will go into the abyss, into hell, separated from the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ, those from the church age, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall also be with the Lord. And the reason why I think this is a different event than the second coming is because this is described as us meeting the Lord in the air. It's not that Jesus is coming bodily down to the earth. It's we meet him in the air. But that, I believe, is the first resurrection and the next event on God's prophetic calendar. The second resurrection will consist of all the Old Testament saints and those who have trusted in Christ during the seven-year tribulation period after the church is raptured and after the first resurrection. So the second resurrection will occur after the tribulation and before the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus on the earth. 
Revelation 20 in verse 4 says, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life, they were resurrected, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, referring to Old Testament saints, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And then I think there's a third resurrection that we find in Scripture, and this would include those new believers who die during the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And so it's believed that these will be instantly resurrected and given their glorified bodies at that time. And so that essentially does it for all the believers. Three bodily resurrections, all with the same eternal destiny. Body and soul joined back together forever in the presence of the Lord. And so this leaves all the unbelievers whose bodies will also be resurrected and joined together with their souls in eternal punishment. And this will occur at what is referred to as the great white throne judgment. And so at the end of this judgment, all who rejected Jesus Christ and God's way of salvation will be cast into eternal hell. And this also is spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from those whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is called the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found, written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. See how sobering this is? There are only two destinations. Heaven or hell. I've had people say to me that their marriage is so bad. It's like like hell living with my husband or my wife. It's like hell. No, it's not. No, it's not. Not even close. Salvation, eternal life, is conditioned upon faith in Jesus Christ. Not everyone will receive eternal life. Only those who have believed. John 3.36, again, we've already gone through this. Jesus said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Let me just say, you do not want to face the wrath of God. If you're here today, and you're listening, and God through His Spirit is working in your life, 
Oh, we believe that God is sovereign in salvation. Nothing escapes His control. He's in 100% control over all things, including the salvation of the souls of every person. But man is responsible to believe. Man is responsible to turn in faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. This is what we're entrenched in here in the Gospel of John. The Word of Christ. Hearing the Word of Christ preached to our ears, to our hearts, to our minds. You do not want to face the wrath of God. Those of our loved ones who have not yet believed, there is an urgency to tell them about the glories of Jesus. We do not want them to face the wrath of God. Only two destinations. One way to salvation. Jesus said, and you'll say it again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. One way to salvation Two destinations. Those who receive Christ as their Savior and those who reject Him. We are without excuse. Turn to Jesus today. That is the message. Turn to Jesus today. That should be our message as we engage people throughout the week. Turn to Jesus today. He uses people like us, flawed, sinful people, to give out His truth and His gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank You this morning for this amazing truth. Just amazing. And it's really amazing for us that who are sinners saved by grace that we look at it and we go, wow, we are so far from deserving this eternal life forever with Jesus in heaven? What we deserve is just the opposite because of our sin. And yet you have been so loving and gracious and merciful to us. How can we not tell others that we have the life-changing medicine of the gospel? Help us with that. Help us with that. Give us the boldness to share the truth of the Gospel with others and see the gravity of it. And Lord, if there's someone here today who doesn't know Christ as Savior, we pray that today would be the day You would open their eyes to this truth that on our behalf, by dying on the cross of Calvary, the Lamb of God died in our place. We thank You for Your truth. May we always anchor in Your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen.